What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. A Connecticut teenager showed off her record-breaking puzzle skills on June 9, 2014 by solving a 250-piece puzzle in just 13 minutes and 7 seconds. Putting together... At a rate of about 18 pieces per minute, she solved the official Guinness Book of World Record puzzle. Pretty fast. Since the 1760s, mankind has enjoyed the adventure of discovering artwork through puzzles one piece at a time. While it can be a joyous experience, it can also be very meticulous. Finding each piece is not always a walk in the park. It could take a couple of hours or, you know, it could take a few days to solve the puzzle depending upon the complexity of it. The worst part about solving a puzzle is when you realize you can't find a piece or a few pieces. If you miss or lose a handful of pieces, you will never be able to solve the entire puzzle. Imagine with me, you walk into a store and you see a picture in a frame. And the closer you look at that picture, you realize it is not actually a picture. It is a puzzle that is representing a picture. But in the dead center of that big puzzle on the wall, you see a piece missing. Most people would see that piece of the puzzle gone and they would just keep walking by, never to try to figure out where that piece was. But my question for you today is if you walked into a store and you saw a picture that was a puzzle on the wall and it had a piece missing, would that bother you? Today, I want you to come with me to walk into the puzzle of the American church. And as you begin to walk through the doorways of the modern American church, you will begin to realize that there's a light show during the worship Scene and it feels like an atmosphere that is kind of feely good. The musicians that on the stage are, are dressed up like a pop band and they sing to perfection. Everything is done perfectly and with great excellence. The pastor finally comes to the stage and the pastor looks like a Hollywood movie actor, dressed in the latest fashion, groomed with the latest haircut picture-perfect white teeth and speaks with such a way that has you in every second of that 30 or 40-minute message. And throughout the message, you were laughing, you were smiling, and you were crying all at the same time. And you couldn't help but being drawn into this sermon. It was unforgettable. But When you left that place, you realized something was just a little off. Something was missing. And there was a piece missing within that entire service. 
And in fact, there is a peace missing that Jesus talked about more than he even talked about heaven. It was surely a, a message that, that felt good, and that was encouraging, and that was, in, uh, that was motivating, but there was a lack of emphasis placed upon a four-letter word. Can you think of that word? It's a word that, that is kind of shunned in our society today. It's a word that most pastors rarely ever talk about. It's the word called hell. H-E-L-L. Listen to this. Hell has disappeared from the pulpits of the modern American church, and very few people have even noticed. Today, as we come to Revelation chapter 20, as you have been with us here, you know that every time you see the phrase in the English Bible in this book, it says, and I saw, it's a transitional period in the life and ministry of John. When he's on that island of Patmos in 95 AD, about 95 years after Jesus was born, he receives this magnificent vision. And it's interesting, the word of God is, is set apart, the Bible is set apart between any other religious document because it reveals to us the origin of humanity. It gives us a brief historical context of all of humanity. And then it gives us the reality of the future of humanity in the days to come. And John just saw the millennium. He just saw the 1,000 years when Christ would establish his, his kingdom here on this earth for 1,000 years in rule and reign. And then he, he looks and, and after this time, that 1,000 years, he sees Satan thrown out into the place of eternal torment. And now John sees a throne. This is not like the throne that was mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5, where you have the, 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 the fire and the, 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 the emerald and, the, and all of the angelic hosts surrounding and the elders and all of the beings in, in heaven there. This is a different type of throne. In fact, we see in this passage, earth that we know of and the sky that we know of or the heavens that we know of have gone away. And now this throne is a throne of judgment. Today, the title of my sermon is these words, The Great White Throne Judgment. And in fact, if I could just tell you that really this, these verses, there's really two questions we have to ask from this passage. What is the Great White Throne Judgment and what is the Lake of Fire? That is really what we have to seek to answer today as we come to this section of God's Word. The Great White Throne Judgment, by the way, is... The time after the millennium when all unbelievers will be judged by God. That is, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is the place that you'll stand and the books will be open. That is the record ledger of your life recording every single word, every single thought, every single deed, every single moment of your life will be opened before God in that time. And if the righteousness of Christ is not covering you through his blood and the atonement of the cross then he will in that moment say, depart from me, I never knew you, into everlasting fire. And that is the question, what is the lake of fire? Well, the lake of fire is a place of eternal torment for all unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Today, our human nature wants to cut this passage out of God's word. Our human nature wants to only emphasize on the loving, compassionate, merciful, kindness attributes of God. 
Our human flesh doesn't want to realize that the same loving God is the same God who is going to judge all of humanity. And today, the key thought for my message is this statement. An education without salvation produces damnation. An education without salvation produces damnation. If you walk away from anything of today's message or really these several verses right here in Revelation 20, it is simply that truth. That is, if we do not tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, then they will be sentenced and condemned guilty throughout all eternity in a terrible place the Bible describes as the lake of fire. Now, before we dive into here, I want to just share with you there are a few major views on, of scholarship about, about what they believe about the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment and eternity separated from God. The first view is what we call universalism. That is the concept that nobody goes to hell, everybody goes to heaven. Now, that sounds amazing to my ear. I want to believe that, but the problem is, is God's word is my final authority, and that is just not found anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Then you have this concept of that some people in scholarship believe. It's called annihilationism. That is the idea that, that if somebody dies without Christ, they're going to they're gonna be destroyed in eternity and cease to exist. That sounds good to my ear. It's kind of a blend between universalism and what we call literalism. But the problem is, is the Bible uses the same word, eternal, for everlasting life as it does eternal and everlasting judgment. So we cannot accept that. The third final view is literalism. That is, in fact, you can trace this all the way back to Jesus Christ and really before him back into the Old Testament that the Bible teaches that the lake of fire is a place of literal eternal torment. We read about this in Luke chapter 16 and, and many other places found in God's word. It's a place the Bible describes as the worm that never dies. Why, why would he use that phrase? Well, a worm, it seems like that it could go through a storm, a tragedy, and it just never, ever will ever die. But here, Jesus, when he used that phrase, the worm that, that shall never die there, that it gives us idea that, that we know that if you stomp upon an earthworm, it will cease to exist. But in eternity, that is the lake of fire, we call hell. Man will there suffer through the agony of death forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why man wants to reject this. And so man has made some compromises throughout the way. Some other views is a view called purgatory. And purgatory sounds good. That is, you could ultimately go off and slip into eternity and somebody can do penance on you in this life and, and you can ultimately be redeemed out of that place of torment. But the problem is, is I've yet to find the word purgatory or the concept of purgatory in Scripture. Then there's the concept of, of that somebody could become saved without ever knowing Christ. I mean, you know, you, you've heard the question, well, well, what if there's, a, there's somebody in another culture all over the world in another area, like in a, a tribe in Africa who's just untouched from the world? What about them? If they die without Christ, are they going to go to hell? It's a, it's a very reasonable question. Then the question is this, why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Those are all great questions. 
I just would want to remind you they're the wrong questions to ask. The real question to ask is why would a holy, righteous God let anybody into heaven? Why would a holy God let sinful humanity like you and me who's polluted by flesh into his perfect, blissful heaven? And so a loving God allows mankind to make the choice of accepting Christ. And we see that throughout history, at one time, every people group in the world knew about the promised Messiah. But I would remind you that your sin does not only affect you. In fact, your sin can affect your immediate family, and it could also affect generations to come. For example, if I decided I wanted to reject Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I wanted to do everything within my power so that my children and my grandchildren would never hear the good news of Christ, my sin would affect future generations. And at some point along the way in history, the Bible speaks about how our history reveals to us that, that Christ and the gospel was revealed to all of humanity and man's sinful rebellion results in the fact that those culture groups at one time have heard the gospel, but now they will split in a sense, as the preacher said of yesterday, hell wide open. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ and there are no exceptions. That's what the word of God teaches then there's this idea of degrees of punishment. We'll get into this here in a little later. But when we stand before God in eternity, those who don't know Christ, if there will be degrees of punishment for their sins. In fact, separation from God in hell will not be a one-size-fit-all. Those like Hitler will be judged in a way that Hitler should be judged. And those who barely scratch in to hell will be judged in a way that they should be judged, all based upon their works. Now, all that to be said, let's be reminded today that this text reveals to us that an education without salvation produces damnation. But now let's dive into here. I'm going to share with you three thoughts as we think about all these things. So we, we've seen these major views, but the only one that weighs up in Scripture is the literal view of the lake of fire in hell. Now, you're welcome to believe whatever you want to believe. Nobody here is going to shove anything down your throat. You can believe whatever you want to about hell and the lake of fire, but you will one day come to the realization that a literal place called the lake of fire exists. And you might come to that realization when it's too late. Now, the first thought comes from verse 11. As we read verse 11, here's the thought I want you to know. Every unbeliever will stand before the sovereign God. Every unbeliever will stand before the sovereign God. Look at verse 11. John says, and I saw. Here's that transitional phrase from the 1,000-year reign of Christ now into the great white throne judgment scene. And the Bible says that, that he sees not just his judgment, but he sees one sitting upon this throne. And of course, that is God. And then it says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. I believe that right here in this phrase, John is witnessing the fulfillment of Peter's prophecy. You say, I didn't think there were prophecy in the New Testament. Sure there is. Peter spoke about in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, how that this world is going to be destroyed by fire. And here we see that God is, in a sense, wiping all that away. The millennium has passed, and now he's destroying this world. Now, if you think we polluted this world pretty bad, you wait till you see what God does to this world in the age to come. And then it says, and there was found no place for them. So earth and heaven, no more to be. 
Every unbeliever will stand before the sovereign God. The Bible speaks about this resurrection of the just and the unjust. And now here in verse number 11 through 15, it is very reasonable that the Bible reveals to us here, this is the second resurrection. That is, these second, the second resurrection is a resurrection to eternal death, whereas the first resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life. But he, here's what you, we all need to understand, is that every person who does not know Jesus as their Savior is going to stand in this moment before a righteous holy, just, sovereign God. But now let's look at verses 12 and 13. The third thought, excuse me, the second thought today is not only every unbeliever will stand before the sovereign God, but, but listen to this. Every unbeliever will be judged by the righteous God. Every unbeliever will be judged by the righteous God. John says in verse 12, he looks and he sees all the dead. That is those who have slipped through the portal way or the doorway we call death. There their deceased corpse are are lying in a grave in a cemetery. Or their ashes have been spread over a mountaintop. Or they have drowned and their deceased body is at the bottom of the ocean. Here the Bible says that, that the earth itself and the seas will give in a sense, these people back to the second resurrection. The question is always asked, well, what if my right leg gets bitten by a shark and, and my left leg gets bitten, bitten by another shark and my torso and my arms and my body gets, gets eaten by a big mammoth of a whale? How's that body going to be resurrected? It will. Just wait and see. I don't have the answer to that question. But I know that in one supernatural way, if God is able to raise the dead when he was on this earth through the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and if he's able to speak the world into existence and speak it all to disappear, surely God can raise those who have died no matter their their place of burial. And so here the Bible says that that, that these books are going to be open. And, And it gives the idea that there's two set of books here. Now, surely there's debate among scholarship about this, but it seems reasonable to believe that one set of books is the record of all that we've ever done in our lives. And the other book is what we would call the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. And that is, if your name is not in that Lamb's book of life, then you will not spend eternity with God in heaven. But the other one is just a a book that records everything we've done in our life. And there we, or excuse me, these people at this judgment will be judged accordingly. Now, we know that the Bible speaks about a judgment place for all believers. We call that the judgment seat of Christ. Paul spoke about that in his letters to Corinth. And in that, we know that that we will give an account for our works of how we conducted our lives as a Christian. But in this moment, this is a place where these unbelievers will stand before God and give an account for their works. And I, I remind you what Isaiah said many, many years ago. He said that all of our righteousness is before God filthy rags. That if you are expecting to be able to enter those pearly gates of glory based upon the good deeds that you've done, walking the old lady across the street, giving food to the shelter, or digging a well for those overseas in Haiti, or etc., etc. My friend, that is not going to cut it. If our good deeds were to outweigh our bad deeds, we would realize that our bad deeds would actually outweigh our good deeds. 
And so here in verse number 12, the Bible says that, that the book of life here, these other books, and then, then, the, then it says that all the dead are going to be resurrected here. And the sea gives up the dead here in verse number 13. And then the Bible says that, that death itself, in fact, verse 13, this passage, this is, should encourage us all. John is witnessing the death of death. Think about that. John is witnessing death experience death. In other words, in chapter 21, we read about how there will be no more death. And here, once and for all, death and hell is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So that we will never be affected by the agony and the pain and the torment of the grave or of death or of the holding place for the wicked right now. The Bible says that they were judged, every man, according to their works. Let me ask you this. If you were to drop dead right now, God forbid that to happen. I want you to live a long and healthy life. But if today was the last day of your life and you breathed your final breath and you stood before God right now, how would you weigh up? The writer of Hebrews says it's a point on demand wants to die. I've been wiggling out of way of my doctor's appointments, my dentist appointments, and my eye appointments, and I wiggle my way out of every appointment I can. But as much as I want to miss my appointment with death, I won't be able to, to miss it. And neither will you. So the reality is, is that this passage, we are face to face with the honest truth that we will experience death and we will stand before God. How will you weigh up? Every unbeliever will be judged by the righteous God. Every unbeliever will stand before the sovereign God. But now look at verses 14 and 15. Every, the third thought today is this. Every unbeliever will spend eternity separated from the presence of God. Every unbeliever will spend eternity separated from the presence of God. Now I know you Bible scholars are there saying, well, God is omniscient. He is omnipresent and he's omnipotent. Yes, he's the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. We know that everywhere God is and there's not a place that God has not been. And we know the psalmist said that if he, makes his, if he goes down to hell, God is there. So in a sense, God is present in hell. But what is not in hell is the love, mercy, and grace of God. So, so when an unbeliever goes to hell or the lake of fire, they will spend eternity separated from God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy. And all they will experience throughout all eternity is the judgment and wrath and fury of God. I want the grace of God, and so do you. Verse 14 says, death and hell were cast. That means thrown into the lake of fire. And the Bible says, this is the second death. And then it says, whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast or thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? When the roll is called up yonder, as the songwriter said, will you be there? Today, I'm convinced that the modern church really just no longer believes in the great white throne judgment. Today, I'm convinced that the modern church, the American church, no longer believes in hell or the lake of fire. Did you know that the day before Thanksgiving is considered 
one of the most traveled days in America. And let's suppose that this Thanksgiving, next week, next Wednesday, you received a tip that at the Atlanta airport, which is generally speaking the, the busiest airport in America, you received a tip that, that the jets said they were full with their fuel, but they were only half full. And so you said, something has to be done. So you hop in your car and you zoom down to Atlanta and you, you walk in, you go to the manager's office and the manager just thought you were a little loony and uh, said, listen, no, we've taken great precaution. Then you go to the front desk and you, you're literally raising cane because you, you receive this tip that, that the tanks say they're full, but they're only half full. So that means that, that it's very possible that, that the jet could be up in the air and then run out of fuel and then crash and perish. And so you are there and and finally one of the guys comes out and just says listen sir i want you to know that we have taken every ounce of precaution to make sure that these fuel tanks are full to the brim and then you go and you find a little piece of cardboard and and you write on there you write these exact words don't fly the jet tanks are only half full and you're walking around the store and you're carrying it or the airport and finally security is called. They take you and they exit you out of their facilities. And somehow you wiggled your way to the runway. <laughs> and there the planes are zooming by and you got your sign in one hand. Don't fly. The jet tanks are only half full. And you're waving your arm in the other and you're yelling as loud as you can. And nobody is taking you seriously. It sounds a little foolish. But in a sense... This is exactly what we have been called to do. But our message is Jesus saves from total separation from God. And salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. But my question is, is do we actually believe that? I normally don't like to read things, but I wrote this down because I want to read it exactly. I'm convinced the modern church no longer believes in the doctrine of hell or the great white throne judgment, because if they did, they would do everything to ensure the world heard the gospel. They would use all of their time, all of their talents, and all of their treasures to fulfill the great commission. They would stop watching hours upon hours of TV and shows and movies to use that time to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. They would use that time instead of watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the other television outlets today and fellowship with each other and strengthen each other and train people so they can go out and make disciples. They would, they would invite all their friends, all their family, and even their foes to gather together to worship and to hear the word of God expounded. They would be less concerned about the net worth of the church and the multi-10 or four or five or $10 million worth of the facilities and sell those facilities and, and, and worship in a place for the fraction of the cost and use that money to plant churches all over the world. They would spend every waking moment pointing people to Jesus Christ. They would stop spending all that money going out to eat to feed the hungry. They would stop wasting their drinks from Starbucks or the coffee shop and build wells for those without water. They would stop hoarding money in their accounts and then send that money to a missionary who needs it overseas. 
They would stop buying outrageously expensive homes to give that money to gospel preachers who are going to go to a city like Chicago or, or Tokyo and plant churches so that the gospel could be heard. They would stop paying all that money for that fancy, luxurious car and buy a used car for somebody less fortunate. They would stop providing excuses for why they don't gather with God's people to worship and start creating excuses of why they will never leave the place of worship. They would spend more time in God's Word, reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, memorizing it, and they would spend more time in prayer, lifting up their fellow brothers' needs, fellow sisters' needs, instead of complaining to each other about everything and this, that, and the third about their lives, they would lift up those petitions to God in prayer, one for the other. They would resign from the American dream to adopt, to adopt God's dream that all men and women would come to repentance. They would stop being the hands and feet of the American dream to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. They would cease Americanizing the world and start evangelizing the world. They would commit to spending the rest of their life sharing the gospel and making disciples. The American church says they believe the Bible. They claim it's the word of God. They say Jesus is the only way to heaven. They say all unbelievers will spend eternity in hell. But my question is how come their lifestyles preach a different message. You see, hell has been erased from the minds of scholarship. Hell has disappeared from the pulpits of the modern church. Hell has been forgotten by church leaders. Hell has been forsaken by professing believers. And the sad part is, nobody seems to care. You see, if you believe in the doctrine of hell, then it would change how you behave. How are you warning the lost about the judgment to come? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.